0: Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. That's how the man in black used to begin his concerts. Maybe that's how I should begin every sermon. Hello, I'm Benji Magnus. Nah, it doesn't have the same feel, does it? Johnny Cash was so much cooler than I am. We may share the same wardrobe, but he's much cooler than I am. But that's how he began his concerts. Hello. I'm Johnny Cash. And that's how The Man in Black began his live album titled At Folsom Prison. As you probably know, it was filmed or recorded live in Folsom Prison in 1968. And the first song on the album is the song titled Folsom Prison Blues, a song he wrote in 1955. It's a song about being in prison and hearing a train drive by and wishing that you were on it. And the song contains the classic line of why the man in the song is in prison. Johnny sings, But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry. There's actually very something moving about hearing Johnny Cash, the man in black, sing all of these heartbreaking songs about loss and heartache and freedom, and sing them to a group of prisoners inside a prison. Uh, the back and forth between them is, is pretty sweet. He's actually very pastoral if you listen to the album. But what's sad as you listen to the album is that some of these guys actually get pulled out of the concert. On the recording, in between the songs, you can hear that a few prisoners get called away from his performance. How sad. I mean, think about it. You're in prison. Maybe because you shot a man in Reno because you just wanted to watch him die. And Johnny Cash, the man in black, is there doing a concert, which is just awesome. And then they call your number and you have to leave because you got mail or something. That's cold-hearted stuff right there. You can hear it on the recording. Some guys, like inmate number 88419, a man named Sandoval, got called out of the concert because they wanted him in reception. A man named Sandoval missed out on the man in black playing his guitar in prison. How sad. Well, there was another man in black who was in prison in the 1600s. He wasn't put in prison because he just wanted to watch some man in Reno die. This man was put in prison because he preached sermons about how God makes dead men come alive in salvation. He was put in prison because he preached about how God is sovereign in salvation. How man doesn't choose God, but God chooses men to be saved and then God makes them alive. His name was Samuel Rutherford, born in 1600 and died in 1661. Rutherford was thrown in prison and ripped away from his beloved congregation because he had a high view of God's sovereignty in salvation and because he wanted to see reform come to the church in Scotland. So he wrote treatises against Arminian theology And subsequently, he was put in prison in the city of Aberdeen, which happened to be a bastion of Arminian theology. He was a Puritan pastor who was deprived of his ministerial office and forbidden to preach anywhere in Scotland. Here's a picture of him. Samuel Rutherford, like all the Puritans, wore black robes. They were the original men in black. And look at his hair. Look at those curls. Some women pay good money to get those kind of curls, don't they? I guess all the good theologians dress in black and have long curly hair, right? When I pastored in Texas at the church, I always wore black. And I had a friend named Tim Fortner who would come up to me every week and shake my hand and say, looks like you're going to a funeral. To which I would reply, maybe I am. It's a line from the movie Walk the Line about the life of Johnny Cash, the man in black. Well, Samuel Rutherford was a man in black and though the years away from his family and the years away from his church were terrible, Rutherford's imprisonment for the gospel became for him a time of sweet fellowship with Jesus. Writing to a friend from prison, He said this of his time in prison. He said, It hath pleased his holy majesty to take me from the pulpit and to teach me many things in my exile and prison that were mysteries to me before as, number one, I see his bottomless and boundless love and kindness. So notice, the first thing on Samuel Rutherford's list is that in prison, he learned of Jesus' bottomless and boundless love and kindness. In prison, away from his family, away from his church, at the top of his list of what he learned behind bars was Jesus' bottomless and boundless love and kindness for him. That was God's goodness to him in that bad place. But this is not to say that his time in prison was easy. Far from it. It was difficult, very difficult. Samuel Rutherford suffered immensely in prison. He also said this in that same letter to his friend. He said, I am now brought to some measure of submission, and I will resolve to wait till I see what my Lord Jesus will do with me. I dare not now nickname Or speak one word against the all seeing and over watching providence of my Lord. I see providence runneth not on broken wheels, but I, like a fool, carved a providence for my own ease. When my wounds are closing, a little ruffle causeth them to bleed afresh. So thin skinned is my soul that I think it is a tender man's skin that may touch nothing who hasn't done that before all of us at some point in our lives have tried to carve a providence for our own ease right in other words we want god to give us what we want we want ease we want our lives to go our way all of us have thought at some point in our lives that we had better plan for our lives than god and all of us have suffered like Samuel Rutherford, where we felt like our souls would bleed again if just barely touched. All of us have had thin-skinned souls at some point. Maybe you're here today and your soul is so frail that a simple bump would cause it to bleed afresh. If so, I have some good news for you. Sit tight like those prisoners in Folsom Prison in 1968. Samuel Rutherford wrote these words while in prison to a friend in March of 1637. He wrote many letters during his time in prison, and these letters have been preserved. They have comforted many a pastor, including yours truly. I return often to his letters. They have been a balm for my thin-skinned soul. Robert Murray Machine said that Rutherford's prison letters were often in his hand. Richard Baxter's view was that apart from the Bible, such a book as Mr. Rutherford's letters, the world never saw the like. Charles Spurgeon said that they were the nearest thing to inspiration, which can be found in all the writings of mere man. Meaning the closest thing to the Bible that any man could write are the letters that Samuel Rutherford wrote from prison. And what's so intriguing is that instead of becoming bitter, Instead of becoming angry with God, Samuel Rutherford was refreshed by the love of Jesus when he was locked up in prison in Aberdeen. He said this as he suffered immensely. Give Christ your virgin love. You cannot put your love and heart into better hand. Oh, if ye knew him, and saw his beauty, your love, your liking, your heart, your desires would close with him and cleave to him. I never, by nine years preaching, get this I never, by nine years preaching, knew so much of Christ's love as he taught me in Aberdeen. Sweet, sweet have been his comforts to my soul, my pen. Tongue and heart have no words to express the kindness, love, and mercy of my well-beloved to me in this house of my pilgrimage. The prison in Aberdeen became sweet to Rutherford because he came to know Jesus more there. So there's a lesson to be learned here. Suffering can soften you if you let it suffering can actually soften you if you let it. When you suffer, whatever it is that you are suffering, in whatever way that you are suffering, it can soften you if you allow it. Some people suffer and they become bitter and they become hardened and they become angry at God. Samuel Rutherford suffered in prison at the hand of providence and it actually softened him life is hard the world is broken Adam ruined this world so long ago in the Garden of Eden when he sinned, and ever since then, it's been a tough go. Work became difficult for Adam because of his sin. Pregnancy and giving birth became difficult for Eve because of their sin. And not long after their two boys grew up, one of them killed the other. Cain was jealous of Abel, and he killed him, perhaps just to watch him die. What heartbreak for our first parents. What sadness, what suffering they experienced. One of their baby boys killed one of their baby boys just to watch him die. How sad. This world is broken with sin and that means that as we live in it, it's going to be hard. We will suffer. We all will suffer. We do suffer. Every human being born into this world since Genesis 3 has suffered. Everyone suffers. Maybe you're suffering today. Maybe your heart is breaking today, right now. Maybe your world has been turned upside down. What hope is there? Well, there is hope when life is black. There's hope because Jesus is the man of sorrows. There's hope because Jesus knows heartbreak. Jesus knows suffering. And because Jesus knows what it feels like to suffer, because Jesus knows what it feels like to have a broken heart, because as Psalm 34 says, Jesus is close to the brokenhearted, then this is true for you if you are suffering today. You cannot put your love and heart into a better hand. What Samuel Rutherford said as he suffered in prison is true for you. You cannot put your love and heart into a better hand than Jesus. And that's because Jesus knows suffering. He can help you whenever you suffer in any of the myriad ways that one can suffer in this world. And Mark will tell us about suffering in this passage today. Mark has included this gruesome story about the imprisonment and then the beheading of John the Baptist to remind us all that we will suffer. So turn to Mark chapter 6. That was a pretty long introduction. According to my notes, I'm on the second page of notes before we even getting to Scripture, which was tough for me to do. But that's a long introduction. Mark chapter 6. Mark 6 was written to encourage the people of God that no matter what happens in life, no matter what people do, in the end, justice will be served. In the end, every wrong will be righted. Every sad thing will come untrue. And you can trust in that even if you don't see it in this life. And John the Baptist certainly didn't see it in his life. The last thing that John the Baptist saw in this life was not a famous musician singing songs about freedom in his prison. The last thing that John the Baptist saw was a sword heading straight for his neck. Look at Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, and hear the word of the Lord. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said... He is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he, Herod, had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So this whole section in Mark actually belongs together from what we saw two weeks ago when Jesus suffered rejection in his hometown in Nazareth, the first six verses of Mark 6, to what we saw last week when Jesus sent the disciples out to do ministry. It all belongs together. And now Mark will tell us about this gruesome story of the beheading of John the Baptist in prison. Now, why? Why does Mark do this? Why does Mark chop this section in half and tell us about John getting chopped in half? Because Mark wants to remind us that to follow Jesus is to suffer. The path to glory is one of suffering, just like it was for Jesus. Mark has employed a literary device here that he uses frequently in his gospel to to stress this particular aspect of discipleship, suffering. Unfortunately, Mark did not consider modern day preachers when he wrote his gospel because he was not aware that we typically preach 35 to 45 minute sermons and it's hard to cover all of his intended material in one sermon. Mark would want us to take this whole unit together because he's using this like sandwich technique to remind us that we will suffer for following Jesus. The technical literary term for this technique is called a chiasm, which works like this. So, Following Jesus' suffering and rejection in his hometown of Nazareth, Mark records then the sending out of the disciples, and then in verse 30, he's going to come back to the disciples returning to Jesus to be refreshed. But then he inserts something in between their going out and their coming again. So Jesus experienced rejection and suffering in Nazareth. The disciples are sent out by Jesus. Then Mark tells us about the imprisonment of John the Baptist and how he got his head cut off. And then Mark will return in verse 32, the disciples returning to Jesus in order to be refreshed. And it's this middle section of the sandwich here, if you will. The imprisonment and death of John the Baptist that is being emphasized in order to highlight what comes before and after it. Mark is wanting to remind the original audience that they would suffer for following Jesus. Recall who Mark is writing to. The original audience who received this gospel was most likely Christians who were living in Rome in the early 60s. Mark is writing to churches who were suffering under the Roman government. Mark wants us to know that the way to glory is paved with suffering, just like it was for Jesus. Mark wants us to know that governments come and go. Governments come and go. Nations come and go. Countries come and go. But God's people are the ones who are still here. Mark wants us to know that persecution and suffering is normal Christianity. And what Mark tells us in verses 3 through 12 here is a, uh, I mean, verses 14 through 29 is a historical flashback. Herod Antipas Antipas had fallen in love with Herodias, the wife of his half-brother, even though both were married at the time. So Herodias divorced her husband and Herod divorced his wife and then they got married in a fever hotter than a pepper sprout. And John the Baptist confronted them and publicly condemned their actions. As verse 18 says, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So John the Baptist was put in prison for standing up for truth. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that John the Baptist was imprisoned at Herod's fortress palace called Machaerus, this Fortress was built atop a steep hill east of the Dead Sea, and this is where John the Baptist was imprisoned. So when John the Baptist gets locked up, he says to the other prisoners, Hello, I'm John the Baptist. And they ask him, What are you in for? And John tells them, I called out Herod for his unlawful marriage. John the Baptist stood up for truth, and now he's got the fortress prison blues. But when Herodias, Herod's new wife, hears about what John said about their marriage, she wants him dead. But Herod likes John, so he's caught in the middle. And when Herodias wanted to put John to death, Herod kept John safe because he knew, as verse 20 says, that he was a righteous and holy man. Herod loved to listen to John. He loved his teaching, but he was perplexed by him. And so his wife Herodias waited, and she eventually got her chance to take out the guy who called out her unlawful marriage. Look at verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And Herodias said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So Herod throws a big birthday party for himself, and Herodias, his new wife, finally gets what she wants. As the sayings go, happy wife, happy life. Or, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Some of y'all men don't understand that, but that is true. Happy wife, happy life. You might want to write that down. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Those, that, those two sentences might be the greatest theological truths that I learned in seminary from one of my professors. Herodias is going to be happy because her daughter comes out and dances for Herod and his friends, provocatively I assume. And she does a great job because Herod tells her she can have anything that she wants. So she asks her mom what she should ask for. And Herodias tells her to ask for the head of John the Baptist. So she does. And Herod has no choice but to oblige. So an executioner was sent to John's jail cell. And John will hear the prison guard whistling as he opens the prison door. Maybe hoping that he's going to be released. But John John the Baptist will not hang his head and cry. He'll hang his head and die. John's head gets chopped off and served up on a platter. Herod has John killed because his wife just wanted to watch this righteous man die. And so the question we need to ask is, why did Mark include this story in his gospel? Why did he interrupt the story of Jesus sending out the disciples to do ministry and then them returning to him in verse 30 to be refreshed and restored? Why did he insert this gruesome story in between? Why does Mark rewind history and tell us about this event that happened in the past? Why does he have this historical flashback? And tell us about John the Baptist. Because Mark wants to remind us that to follow Jesus is to suffer. Now, everyone suffers in this world. And broadly speaking, there are three kinds or three categories of suffering. Number one, sometimes we suffer because we're stupid. Because we sin. We make bad decisions and we have to live with the consequences. If you shoot a man in Reno just to watch him die, there will be consequences. Namely, prison. We sin and we have to live with the consequences. That's category number one. And sometimes... We don't deserve the suffering that comes into our lives. Sometimes it's the sin of others and what they do that ushers in suffering and ushers in consequences into our life. Someone else does something and then we have to deal with the consequences. That's even harder. That's category two. And then sometimes we suffer simply because we belong to Jesus. That's category three. We suffer because we stand up for truth like John the Baptist. Jesus said this would happen. We'll see it in Mark thirteen thirteen, where he said, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Because we belong to Jesus, this world will hate us. I've told you before several times that if you love Jesus with all of your heart, then people will hate you with all of their guts. To belong to Jesus brings with it hatred by the world. To be a disciple means that we will suffer. And we really are starting to see this in our country and in our world, aren't we? Don't be surprised if it gets uglier for Christians. It's happening. But when it gets ugly, keep your eyes on your beautiful Savior. When it gets ugly, focus and meditate and dwell upon Jesus. Not what politicians and not what governments are doing. If you obsess over that, it will depress you. Focus on Jesus. Think about Him. Obsess over Him. Don't obsess about politicians. Obsess about providence. That God's in control. That he knew 10,000 years ago what would be happening today in our country, in our state, in our city. Obsess over that. Two months ago, some politicians didn't know what would be happening right now. Jesus knew 10,000, he knew 10 million years ago. Obsess over that. Don't obsess about the government. Obsess about God, don't obsess over Jerry Brown and what he's doing. Obsess over what Jesus is doing. Yes, we will suffer. Make no mistake about it. The church will suffer, but we serve a sovereign Savior. Governments come and go, but guess who is always here? The church. We ain't going anywhere. Governments come and go. Countries come and go. Where's Rome? Gone. It's gone. America, the America that we know, might not be here in 50 years. Who cares? Church is still going to be here. The America that we know may not be here in 10 years. Who cares? You know who will be here? The church. The people of God. We are not going anywhere countries and leaders and governments come and go. And there's one group of people who are always here, who are never moved, and that's the church, the bride of Jesus. And that's what Mark is getting at here in chapter 6. He wants to remind his original audience in Rome, because they were suffering, Their government was doing things that they did not support or believe in, things that were keeping them up late at night. And Mark wants to remind them, and Mark wants to remind us, that we will suffer for following Jesus. He wants to comfort our hearts when we suffer. We'll get to that next week, when the disciples return to him from doing ministry. They need to be refreshed. They need to rest and be with Jesus. So he wants to comfort them. We'll see that next week, because this whole unit goes together. He also wants to prepare us so that we're not surprised when it does happen. That's why he interrupts this story about Jesus sending out the disciples to do ministry and then their return to him to be refreshed in verse 30 because he wants to remind us that we will suffer as we go out into the world and do ministry. To remind us that if you love Jesus with all of your heart, then people will hate you with all of their guts. You can't get away from that. But Mark ultimately wants to remind us that we have a Savior who, as the prophet Isaiah says, was acquainted with grief and sorrow, the man of sorrows. That's what Mark's gospel is moving toward the cross. And isn't that what you want in a Savior? Don't you want a Savior who has suffered? Or do you want a Savior who never got his robes dirty? Do you want a Savior who was granted immunity to suffering? one who got a pass on hardship. Jesus is very familiar with suffering. As I was writing on my sermon notes this morning, about five o'clock this morning, I was writing on here, circling and underlining, and I looked down and I was like, is that blood on my manuscript? Right after I wrote, Jesus is very familiar with suffering, and there's a spot of blood, and I thought, where did that come from? Stigmata? What is this? And I had a little cut on my finger that was bleeding all over my sermon manuscript. Just another providential little moment for the Lord to remind me that Jesus suffered and shed his own blood. And it's also on page 4 too. But that's what makes Jesus a wonderful high priest. As the preacher of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because Jesus suffered, you cannot put your love and heart into a better hand. In what way are you suffering today? Is it because you did something and now you're dealing with the consequences? Or did somebody do something and now their sin has brought consequences into your life uninvited? Or are you suffering because you love Jesus with all of your heart and now some people hate you with all of their guts? Maybe you're suffering in all three of these ways. Well, let me give you some good news. Are you one of the offspring of Abraham? Is Jesus your Savior? Are you a child of God? Then you are the one Jesus helps. He was made just like you in every way except sin, and that makes him a very merciful high priest. He's faithful. If you're suffering because you did something and now you're dealing with the consequences, Jesus is there. He will help you. If you're suffering because somebody else did something and now their sin has brought consequences into your life uninvited, Jesus is there. He will help you. Or maybe you're here today and you're suffering because you love Jesus with all of your heart and now some people hate you with all of their guts. Jesus is there. He will help you. He's a merciful high priest. He's a faithful high priest. If you love Jesus with all of your heart, then people will hate you with all of their guts. When they see Jesus, they may not like it. But don't get caught up with all the suffering. That's that's where we lose it. Acknowledge that that might become a reality. Prepare, Prepare for it beforehand. Don't be afraid. Prepare for it. But let your main focus be on loving Jesus as you suffer. Let your thoughts be on loving Jesus and how much He loves you, and that will help you prepare beforehand. Love Jesus with all of your heart. And what gets you put in prison someday? Loving Jesus with all of your heart? That will be what sustains you as you get put in prison, namely your relationship with Him. Loving Jesus might get you put in prison someday, And loving Jesus is what will sustain you in prison. Your relationship with him. So do you love him today? Then you have nothing to fear because that love might land you in prison. But your love for him, because of his love for you, will sustain you. His steadfast love will sustain you. His steadfast love is what sustains you when you suffer. Just ask Samuel Rutherford. When you are suffering, at some point, you have to stop and begin talking about Jesus and who he is and what he has done and what he can do. You have to insert Jesus into the conversations that you are having. If you're having conversations about politics, you have to stop occasionally and insert Jesus into the conversation. If you're having conversations about what's happening here at this church, you have to stop and insert Jesus into the conversation. If you're having conversations about how you're suffering at your workplace, you have to stop sometimes and insert Jesus into the conversation. You're having a conversation about your kids and what's going on in their world, in their lives, in their hearts. You have to stop and insert Jesus into the conversation. If you're having conversations with your spouse and by meaning, when I say conversations, you married people know what I'm talking about, right? When you have conversations with your spouse, you know, and it gets ugly, sometimes you have to stop. And insert Jesus into the conversation. And invite him into the two-way conversation, which should really be three-way. You have to ask Jesus to pull up a seat and recalibrate your heart when you are suffering. You cannot obsess over your situation without connecting it to Jesus because it will kill you. you. may not get your head chopped off, but it will kill you. Let me repeat that. You cannot obsess over your situation, whatever it is that you are suffering, without connecting it to Jesus or it will kill you. It will suck the life out of your soul. You have to stop periodically when you are suffering and get your theological bearings again. You cannot obsess over where our country is heading without connecting it to Jesus or it will kill you. And I need to repeat that this morning for some people here. You cannot obsess over where our country is heading without connecting it to Jesus or it will kill you. You'll lose your focus and you'll lose your mind. When you are suffering, you have to stop periodically and get your theological bearings again. You have to insert Jesus into the heartbreaking and heart-wrenching conversations that you are having. That's why Mark inserted John the Baptist into this chapter. To remind us that we will suffer. And as we'll see next week, we have a Savior and a Shepherd who helps us. That's why he inserts John the Baptist here. To remind us that we have a Savior and a Shepherd that we need to insert into our conversations and into our life and into our suffering. You have to stop and talk about Jesus. You have to stop and talk about what he is like. You have to remind yourself of all that he is for you. You have to be reminded that you are in union with Jesus, the king and sovereign ruler of this universe. You have to go to Jesus with your pain and sorrow. You have to put your love and heart into his hand. The good news of the gospel is that you have a savior who has been there. He has experienced Category 2 suffering. He has experienced Category 3 suffering. Jesus has experienced Category 2 suffering where people sinned and did wrong to him, a completely innocent and sinless man. And he has experienced Category 3 suffering where he stood up for truth and suffered for it, like in his hometown of Nazareth, where they wanted to throw him off a cliff. But Jesus never experienced Category 1 suffering because he never sinned. He never made a stupid decision where he had to deal with the consequences. He never sinned and had to suffer the consequences for his actions. Jesus came because Adam introduced category one suffering through his sin. Adam introduced category suffering where your actions, your sins have consequences. And then that led to category two and category three suffering. Jesus came because Adam introduced suffering into our world through his sin and through his rebellion. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus went to the cross for our sin and he was treated as if category one suffering was his responsibility. As if he had done it, even though he didn't. Jesus suffered the consequences for our sin. Let that sink in. He suffered for our sins. And yet... He says in John 15, two times, I read it last night and read it this morning. He says, I call you friends. You're my friends. He knows every nook and cranny of our heart that we're fairweather friends. And he says, I call you friends. We're nothing but a bunch of double-crossing blondes from like a 1940s film. And Jesus says, you're my friends he experienced Category 2 and Category 3 suffering in his life and ultimately at the cross. Christian, you have a great and merciful and faithful high priest that you can go to whenever you suffer in any of these three ways. Because Jesus suffered for you, you cannot put your love and heart into a better hand than his. So how do you do this? How do you put your love and heart into his hand When you suffer, you just pour your heart out. You just tell him all that is weighing on you. Tell him how your heart hurts. You tell him about your pain. You tell him about that strained relationship that has gone south. You tell him about the wayward child. You tell him about the distant spouse. You tell him about the overbearing parents. You tell him about the church member that's getting under your skin. You tell him about the obnoxious neighbor. You tell him about the mean coworker. You tell him about the persecution that you are suffering. You just pour your heart out. That's how you put your love and heart into the hand of Jesus. You talk to Jesus and you talk about Jesus. That's how you put your love and heart into his hand. You talk to Jesus and then you talk about Jesus. Let's talk to him now in prayer and then we'll sing about him in song. Father, we thank you for Mark's gospel and that under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he included this historical flashback to remind us that we will suffer because we belong to Jesus. It's not all roses. It's difficult. But there's grace because we have a Savior, we have a shepherd who cares and refreshes and restores us, Father. So for anyone here today suffering in any way, Father, May they pour their heart out and just cry out to you and put their heart, put their love into your hand and may you comfort them as they focus on your son, as they talk to him and talk about him. Help us, we need you, in Jesus' name, amen.